Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 15 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes, explicit language and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. Gordon and Derek finally managed to get into the house. They knew something strange was going on. The lights were off and the curtains were drawn. Gordon's fiancée wasn't the sort of person to just disappear, nor was her father Matthew. In the darkness searching for the light switch, Gordon and Derek noticed something strange on Matthew's favourite armchair. It was a deep red stain. When they drew the curtains and light flooded the room, it was then they began to question whether Matthew and Allison were still alive. Matthew Manwaring was in his early 60s. He had lost his wife to cancer two years earlier. The partially sighted pensioner would later be described in court as very gentle and very kind. 
He had since retired from his job where he had worked as a bank messenger in charge of cashing paper assets. He lived in Aldersea Gardens in Barking, East London. Matthew Manwaring had two adult children. His son Mark, in his mid-twenties, was an officer in the Royal Air Force, working away in Cyprus. Mark's younger sister Alison still lived with her father, however she was due to be married. With her birthday approaching, she was soon to be moving in with her fiancé Gordon Healis in just a week's time. Although Matthew's son Mark was out of the country, he wanted to sell his Ford Escort car. At the time, Thursday, April 23, 1992, the internet was at least a decade away from being widely used, so Mark put an advert in a local newspaper, the Newham Recorder. His father agreed to speak with anyone that was interested. The ad read, XR3i Cabriolet. G-Reg, stunning red, all electronics with Cosworth alloys and expensive alarm, low mileage, just serviced, priced to sell at £7,750 or nearest offer. The very same day the advert was published, Matthew received a call from a Mr Sinclair inquiring about the car. He was very interested. After the young man on the other end of the line was given the address, he said he would be popping round the next morning. That night, Matthew Manwaring had prepared everything he needed for a day's fishing. After a good night's sleep, he was going to be up early to visit his brother Derek, who lived in Hornchurch. Matthew was a keen angler and was looking forward to some peace and quiet while catching trout. As he settled into bed, Matthew heard someone knocking outside. He shuffled downstairs and opened the front door of the large pebble-dash two-storey semi-detached home. It was a man he did not know. The individual was tall, well-built in his mid-twenties with a goatee beard. He apologised profusely but told Matthew that as he was passing by and was so excited about seeing the car, he just couldn't wait till tomorrow. One of Matthew's elderly neighbours witnessed the exchange of words as the two men spoke about the car with Matthew explaining how it belonged to his son, who was currently away working abroad for the RAF. The neighbour watched the bonnet of the car being lifted open and the pair inspecting the engine. Thinking nothing more of it, the neighbour went back inside. Around an hour later, Alison, who had been spending the evening with her fiancé Gordon, travelled home. She was excited to start this new chapter in her life, in a new house with her husband-to-be. During the early hours of the next day, the Ford Escort would be driven away from the property in Barking, in the hands of its new owner.
When hospital porter Gordon Helis tried to call his fiancée at the bank where she worked in Forest Gate, he was told that she had not turned up that morning. It was only a few miles from her home, and Alison would always be in touch if she was ever going to be late or was unable to make it into work. She was dependable and always prompt. So Gordon then rang the property where Alison was staying with her father, but again he received no response. It hadn't even been 12 hours since they were picking curtains together for their new home. They had arranged to meet up again to pick furniture. So what happened? Gordon was devastated. His relationship with Alison had not been easy. Before she passed away a few years earlier, at first Alison's mother did not approve of her daughter being romantically involved with a man who was black. But the couple were very much in love and wanted to spend the rest of their lives together. They had been in a loving relationship for five years. Gordon had no idea where Alison could be. He tried calling later in the day and even in the evening, but no one picked up. Alison's fiancé grew more and more anxious. Coincidentally, that same day, Alison's uncle, who lived in Hornchurch, was growing restless. Derek Manwaring was waiting for his brother to turn up as they had arranged to go on a fishing trip. Like Gordon, Derek rang the Manwaring's home, but he too received no response. After a number of concerned phone calls were made, along with Gordon, Alison's fiance. Derek and another of Matthew Manwaring's brothers visited the property on Aldersea Gardens. The lights were off and the curtains were drawn. Despite repeated calls for both the father and daughter, there was no reply. Confused, the men left under the assumption that Allison and Matthew could have gone for a brief weekend break. The next day, Derek again looked for his brother and niece, but could not track them down. It was not until Monday, April 27th, almost a full four days since Matthew and Alison were last seen, that Derek returned to the property along with Alison's fiancé, and they managed to get inside the house. They opened up the curtains and switched on the lights in the living room. They were shocked to find Matthew's favourite armchair was covered in a deep red stain that also marked the floor. Well aware of what this could mean, the men contacted the emergency services and the police rushed to the scene. Forensic officers swept the property. A handwritten letter addressed to Gordon Helis was discovered. It was from his fiancée, Alison. It mentioned how she and her father were going away for a few days, although the correspondence was incredibly vague. It gave no indication of why she would disappear unannounced when she was moving in with her soon-to-be husband. Signed with a kiss... It read, Gordon, I have to go away for a couple of days. 
I cannot explain now. It is very important. See you soon. Yours, Alison. Gordon thought it strange, as she would always write Love Alison rather than yours, and her pet name for him was Hun, short for Honey, which was never written. Stranger still, Gordon had no way of accessing the property, so why would Alison leave him a note at her father's home? I have never known Alison to disappear without telling me where she had gone, he would later say. Her orange-red Austin Mini Metro car was not there, and neither was her brother's Ford Escort. Paperwork indicated it had recently been sold. There was a receipt for the car paid in cash by a Mr. Sinclair, but there was no money in the house. Some of Alison's clothing, which she had been wearing on the night she was last seen by Gordon, was neatly folded and left on her bed. Alison's fiancé was certain that the letter, allegedly written and signed by Alison, did not seem right. The two officers heading the investigation, Scotland Yard Detective Superintendent Mike Morgan and Barking CID Detective Inspector Phil Burrows agreed that something terrible could have befallen the father and daughter. However, they did not know what. There were signs of a struggle. Maybe it was a robbery gone wrong. The timber of the wooden door frame in the hall appeared to have been splintered and shoddily repaired with polyfiller. This wasn't in keeping with the rest of the property. Shotgun pellets would be recovered embedded in the timber. A piece of blood-stained wood was found in a bin. When scene of crime officers had searched the house, they were pointed to two cushion covers left in the washing machine. They appeared to have been cleaned recently. Despite them being washed it was clear they were stained with blood. Although attempts had been made to scrub the property, there were traces of blood in the bath. And finally, several items that belonged to Alison were missing. This included a camera, a jewellery and checkbooks, along with checkbooks and passbooks from other members of the family, including Mark, who was currently overseas. Matthew Manwaring never kept a great deal of money at the property, so as far as the police could ascertain, the motive appeared to be only the theft of a car and maybe a few hundred pounds from their bank accounts. It emerged that within little more than a few hours after Mr. Sinclair left the home, £200 had been withdrawn from an ATM by someone using Alison's Barclay card. The withdrawal was made at Barclays Bank close to Aldersea Gardens. Three more withdrawals followed. Whoever obtained the money must have known the pin for Allison's card. A call was put out to every bank and building society in the area, asking cashiers to alert the police if any accounts belonging to the man-wearings were used. Neighbours were also interviewed and described several loud noises followed by a scream. Then, silence. When they went outside, they heard nothing more. They were unaware of where the sound came from and waited a few minutes before returning to their homes. 
fears grew. Detectives were almost certain of foul play. From Barking Police Station, detectives held a press conference on Wednesday, April 29th. Appealing to the public, they did not mention that they suspected a violent assault had taken place, only that Matthew Manwaring and his daughter Alison were missing. Detective Superintendent Mike Morgan said that he was sceptical about the contents of the note found at the scene. Alison was described as freckle-faced, slim, with fair hair. Her father was five feet seven inches tall, slightly built, with a receding hairline. Mark Manwaring, Matthew's son, who had recently returned to the UK, told reporters... To my dad and sister, if you are out there and you are able to do things of your own free will, then you must give us a call just to let us know you are okay. If there is somebody out there holding you against your will, then I would say I have nothing of value. You have got all you want from the home. Let them go and let's forget what happened. They have nothing that is of any value. Mark later spoke about his father and sister. Two people by themselves, um, very happy, uh, didn't harm anybody whatsoever. I mean, my dad wouldn't even drive his car if the tax disc was out of date. You know, that, that, that's the sort of law-abiding people they were. My dad would help everybody. He spent the last two years of his life looking after an elderly neighbour who passed away earlier this year um, from East Ham before we even moved. Um, People in the street, you'd always help them out. And, you know, just for this to happen, it's just sickening. And and your sister, what was she like? Very popular person. Uh, worked in Newham General Hospital for a long time. Um, had lots and lots of friends. Just lovely girl. Mark Manwaring was unaware of any reason why his father and sister might have been targeted. They had no enemies and had never gone missing before. Information was limited. However, after speaking to Matthew Manwaring's neighbours, police made an appeal, asking to talk with the man in his mid-twenties with a goatee beard, seen discussing the sale of the Ford Escort with Manwaring six days earlier during the late evening of Thursday, April 23rd. To their surprise, the man came forward. Hearing the appeal for information, he said that yes, he had visited the property after inquiring about the car when he saw an advertisement in the local newspaper. He categorically said that both Matthew Manwaring and Matthew's daughter Alison were at the property, but he was in no way involved with their disappearance. He told officers at Barking Police Station that he had paid in cash and driven the car away. However, when asked if he still had the vehicle, the man explained unfortunately he had sold it days earlier at a car auction in North London. He said there was nothing more that he could add, and he thought that would be the end of the matter. He was calm and collected before he readied himself to leave the interview room. However, Barking CID Detective Inspector Phil Burrows 
asked the man what he was doing going into a branch of the Nationwide Building Society and unsuccessfully attempting to withdraw several hundred pounds from Mark Manwaring's bank account. This was odd given that Mark was abroad serving in the RAF, and his withdrawal book was always kept in a drawer in his father's dressing table, hidden from view. The attempt was made around 12 hours after the first ATM withdrawal from Allison's bank account. The man was shocked, almost dismissive, but police had CCTV footage of him dressed in a raincoat, entering the building society and claiming to be man-wearing. The cashier did not hand over any money as the man's signature was not a match with the one they held on record. Appearing flustered, the man now claimed that when he was handed the vehicle documents and manual for the car, Mark's passbook had coincidentally been picked up with it. He calmly admitted that he succumbed to temptation and tried to withdraw some money, but that was all. As the police now had evidence of theft and attempted fraud, the suspect was held in custody. He still insisted that he had nothing to do with the disappearance or deaths of Matthew and Alison Manwaring. He pleaded, I don't know what happened to them. I heard on the radio that they were missing. I volunteered myself to try and help, and I've been arrested. Detectives began their investigation into the suspect, who had walked into the station. On the late evening of Thursday, April 23rd, 1992, after Matthew Manwaring had answered the door to a young man interested in buying his son's car, he invited the prospective buyer into his home. Once the pair were inside the house away from prying eyes, the man pulled out a concealed shotgun, firing the weapon which struck the 62-year-old point-blank in the chest. Matthew fell backwards into an armchair and would have likely died almost instantly as the shrapnel from the bullet caused catastrophic damage to his heart. With Matthew bleeding heavily, the gunman began to clean up the scene before Alison Manwaring walked through the front door. The assailant may have been aware that she lived at the property after he spoke with her father. As Alison wandered into the living room, she must have seen her father dead from a single gunshot wound. After she attempted to flee, the intruder fired a warning shot into the doorframe to stop her from leaving. Outside, neighbours had heard a second loud bang followed by the sound of a woman shrieking. But then everything went quiet. Unsure of where exactly the noise had emanated from, The residents waited a few minutes, but hearing nothing more and assuming it might have been something less ominous, they went back inside. In the house at gunpoint, Alison was restrained with handcuffs, tied to a radiator, beaten repeatedly about the face and head, before being made to sign a receipt for the sale of her brother's car and divulge her banking details. 
she was asked several intimate questions about her life, so her father's killer could learn more. A note was forged addressed to her fiancé that implied Alison had left with her father. While the exact details are unknown, it is understood she was made to remove her clothes. She was sexually assaulted. Afterwards, the intruder then put his hands around Alison's throat. Born during the late 1960s, Benjamin Echo Lang spent the first few years of his life in Paisley, a town west of Glasgow in the Scottish Lowlands, before splitting his time travelling between Ghana and the UK with his family. One of eight siblings, his parents Kojo and Josephine wanted their son to follow in his father's footsteps. His father Kojo was a revered Ghanaian author and poet. Lang excelled academically with an almost genius level IQ. He was offered a place to study at Loughborough University in Leicester during the mid-80s. However, despite all his promise and the opportunities before him, instead he chose a life of crime. During the start of 1987, using a replica firearm, he robbed five taxi drivers of their earnings. Lang was sentenced to six years at a young offender's institution. He was released after serving half of his sentence. The boxer and fitness fanatic was struggling to make ends meet. He had found work as a van driver for Selfridges in London at their Oxford Street branch, but he was still overdrawn with only a few pounds to his name. At the time he walked into Barking Police Station to offer his side of the story, Lang was living in East Ham Manor Way in Newham, only a few miles from the home Alison Manwaring shared with her father. As police continued to question Lang, he provided the details of the auction house where the Ford Escort had been sold. The company confirmed that yes, a Benjamin Lang had used their services. However, interestingly, the car was sold at a loss. The new owners had paid almost £1,000 less than Lang had allegedly paid for it only days earlier. Benjamin Lang was charged with attempted fraud. He was held in HMP Pentonville. The car was collected. The bewildered new owners who purchased the Ford Escort were also arrested, however they were later released without charge. A team of forensic officers carried out an analysis of the inside of the car. It was abundantly clear that the vehicle had been used in some way to commit a crime, as the dark fabric in the boot and footwells was damp. It was soon confirmed that it was blood. Forensic analysis concluded that the blood matched the same blood group that was found in the man wearing's home. A team of police officers headed to Benjamin Lang's flat in Beckton, East London. There they would find a mountain of evidence which suggested that Lang intended to commit a crime. 
He documented his thoughts in a blue exercise book, where he wrote of his desire to steal motor vehicles and how he planned to sell them. On the cover, he had written business ideas. In his writings, Lang questioned himself on how he would go about it. He would find someone he considered vulnerable, maybe elderly, kill them and make it seem as though they had taken their own life. Also, a dog-eared magazine called Murder Casebook was found among his things. It highlighted a case in which a man was murdered, but his killers had made it look like a suicide. Details of this crime were copied into Lang's exercise book, where he also noted how he would commit a murder. One plan involved stealing a van and killing the owner by staging a suicide. The victim would be sealed in a vehicle that was slowly filled with carbon monoxide. From what officers gathered, Lang's writings were documented a considerable period before Allison and Matthew Manwaring had disappeared. Lang also listed what he would need in order to commit the crime and clean up the scene. This included, quote, Bag for PA, black bags, H-cuff, gloves, change of clothes, glasses, crossbow, folder, registration dock, letter of sale, gel hair. It was understood the bag for PA was short for pump-action shotgun. H-cuff was a set of handcuffs, and he would be using hair gel to change his appearance. One of Lang's neighbours eventually came forward to say that he had been asked to look after a camera. This was the same camera that had been taken from the property on Aldersea Gardens. While this did indeed point to Lang having access to Manwaring's home and the desire to commit murder, there was one big problem. Or actually, there were two. The bodies of neither Matthew nor Alison Manwaring had been discovered, so police considered that perhaps one or both of them were still alive and being held somewhere. At this stage, detectives were not sure. There was yet another strange twist in the investigation. As forensic teams continued to work at the Manwaring's house, a letter was delivered apparently from the missing father and daughter. But the detective leading the investigation is sure it wasn't written by Matthew or Alison Manwaring. He read out one paragraph. I can't tell you where we are yet. While Benjamin Lang was behind bars, the correspondence delivered to the home was addressed to Mark Manwaring. He had since returned from his service with the RAF to appeal for his missing family. The letter, littered with spelling mistakes, had been composed on a typewriter, printed on floral paper. It was dated April 28, 1992, with the time listed as, quote, 18.17pm Dearest Mark, 
I know you are very worried about where we are. I can't begin to explain the thought that has gone into Daddy and I leaving. It has been very, very lonely for Daddy since Mum died, and all he does now is drink himself to sleep every night. I can't live with him in that state, so we both decided to have a break and try to forget the constant pain. The, sorry for the mistakes, I'm still a bit nervous. Last straw was on Thursday night after we sold the car and Daddy was so drunk he fell and cut his chest. He is alright now though, and trying to forget the loneliness. I promise you Mark, I'm looking after him well. Mark, we took some photos, my sentimental jewellery, the car money, our bank books. I think we took yours by mistake too. Please understand the way we had to do things. It's hard but necessary for Daddy. I can't tell you where we are yet, but we are in London still. I swear to you we are okay. I left my car behind Plasto Station. You would have traced us too quickly, so Daddy said to leave it. Daddy needs to be happy again, Mark, and I'll do it for him. Please understand we both love you so much and it's hard to ask you to understand but try for now. Once Daddy sorts out his feelings and I feel better about the termination I've had to have, it hurts too much to go into that now. We will send you photographs from Daddy's camera when we develop them. Love always in God. Daddy and Alison. With a letter in the possession of police, officers were dispatched to Plasto Railway Station where they found Allison's car. Mark was convinced the letter was not written by his sister. Uh, it just seemed to me like a very poor attempt at uh, misleading the police. It was typed and very badly at that. The sister always handwrites letters. The stamp on it wasn't franked and it wasn't even signed and the contents of it were just completely fabricated. Detectives were sure that Benjamin Lang had somehow been involved with drafting the letter and he also knew a great deal of information about the family. It was believed that he could have threatened one of them for information. As Allison's car was being forensically examined, on Friday, May 1st, Lang was brought before Barking Magistrates Court. Lang was told he would be held on remand until the next hearing but emotions boiled over when Lang shouted at the prosecutor, You are a liar. You know that. Benjamin Lang answered three questions from the clerk of the court to confirm his name, age and address. He then sat and listened as the prosecutor, Mr Dermot Dawley, outlined the background to his arrest. He faces two charges of kidnapping, one of the theft of a nationwide building society passbook and one of attempting by deception to obtain £200 in cash from the nationwide building society. A fingertip search was undertaken in the surrounding areas near to where Lang lived in South Newham and spots he frequently visited. 
close to London Docklands on Eastern Way around one mile north from Lang's girlfriend's. Police found several black bin bags which contained items stolen from the man Waring's property, including Alison's jewellery. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. With news of Lang's appearance in court being made public, his girlfriend Sharon Thompson reached out to detectives. She lived in a terrace property in southeast London. A week earlier, she had come home to find Lang in the house. He looked exhausted, with his clothes dirty and utterly soaked from the rain pouring outside. Sharon asked him what he had been doing. Lang calmly told her that he had been helping with her garden, turning over the soil outside. Out of her window, Sharon could see a spade and a pickaxe. After Sharon told the police what Lang had done, they were quick to rush to the scene on Greening Street in Abbey Wood, just over 20 miles from the property in Barking where the man Waring's lived. 
the road was sealed off and a crowd gathered outside. Forensic officers slowly sifted through the soil in the back garden and it was not long before they found something. A black plastic bag. Then another. Then another. Ten in all. They were heavy. The bags had been buried in a grave six feet long, three feet wide and two feet deep. As officers started slowly to open the first bin bag, they realised it contained body parts. From the front of number three Greening Street in the quiet town of Abbey Wood near Woolwich, there's little sign now that anything is amiss. A solitary policeman guards a half-open front door. And on the green opposite, there are still people walking their dogs and still children playing. But it was in the back garden here at number three that the horribly mutilated bodies of Alison and Matthew Manwaring, who disappeared from their blood-stained home in Barking a week and a half ago, were discovered by detectives. They had been literally chopped into pieces by their killer or killers, then dumped in plastic bin liners and buried here. Reporters from the Observer newspaper interviewed a friend of the Manwarings, who did not want to be named. They said, A detective arrived and told us all of the news. He said Alison and Matthew's bodies had been found in pieces. Mark and Gordon just broke down. We were all devastated. And the fact the bodies were mutilated is even more horrific. A photo widely published pictured Gordon Helis in tears, holding a bouquet of pink roses for the woman he would never get to marry. Mark Manwaring placing a kindly arm around Gordon's shoulder. He could barely stand, he was so overwhelmed with grief. In a ceremony arranged by Alison's fiancé and her brother, more than a hundred people gathered to pray and lay wreaths outside the Manwaring's home in tribute to a much-loved father and daughter. Family friends were overcome with emotion, but Alison's uncle insisted he wouldn't want to see those who killed his brother and niece face the death penalty. I've never believed in capital punishment, and to be truthful, I don't think this has changed my view on that. Can you ever forgive these people? Oh, never. Never. No way. And let me get hold of him. That's a different story. Detective Superintendent Mike Morgan spoke to the press about the distressing nature of the case. I'm pretty uh, devastated about it myself. I think it's affected all the team, not only the family, but us personally. It's been pretty uh, devastated. It is probably the right word to describe it. As the prosecution was building its case against Benjamin Lang, they still needed one more piece of evidence. The gun used in the crime. Barking CID Detective Superintendent Mike Morgan described the murders as a horrific and senseless killing and explained that another individual had been taken into police custody to help with the investigation. While it appeared Lang was the prime suspect, 
There were several of his acquaintances officers wished to speak to about their whereabouts in the days following the killings. However, their connection to the murders was not yet revealed. Understandably upset, Allison's brother Mark asked for help in finding the people involved. In an interview he said, How can somebody walk into somebody's home and destroy two lives? I did not think that it was the sort of country where you could come home and find your father's house with the walls covered in blood. The people who are responsible for this are slime, scum. They just don't deserve to walk the face of this earth. It's my opinion. I have no sympathy for them whatsoever. Yeah, they, they've just got to be brought to justice. If anybody knows anything at all, call the police now. Let's get this finished. They are just evil bastards, and they, they just don't deserve to live. Residents on Greening Street spoke about how the discovery of the remains had affected them. It's really shocking, you know, because this used to be a really quiet street. Even we don't get break into cars or anything like that over here. Frightening, it's horrifying, really. Just to, you know, think something like that can happen so close to home, it's terrible. I was late coming home, so I didn't get home until midnight Saturday and found that uh, there was police roaming around everywhere. But, uh, I was quite concerned what was going on. It's something that you just read about that happens to other people. Um, when it comes on your doorstep, then it's... Quite shocking. Also appealing for help, Gordon Healis spoke about his fiancée. She was the best thing that could have happened to me. She was such a kind, caring person. Everyone who knew her never had anything bad to say about her. I love her so much. Alison was such a lovely girl. She was my best friend, he added. Detectives were categorical in their assertion that Gordon was not in any way involved in his fiancée's death. However, that did not stop the tabloids highlighting that he had been questioned by the police. They seemed to ignore repeated statements by detectives that the interviews were voluntary and simply undertaken so they could further understand more about Alison's life and any connection that she may have had directly or indirectly to the suspects. D.S. Morgan offered protection and anonymity to any witnesses that came forward appealing to commuters who might have spotted someone using Allison's car. A tip had been received from an anonymous caller who said they had spotted two men on Settle Road in Plaster. The men pulled up in Allison's Mini Metro before locking the vehicle and walking to the train station. However, police had nothing more to go on. The News of the World offered a £25,000 reward for anyone that could provide information on the case. Derek Manwaring, Matthew's brother, spoke about the reward. He said, We realised that any attention in the papers may help jog someone's memory or conscience, but it is a sad comment on the world that it takes money to get people to talk.
just over two weeks after Benjamin Lang was charged with two counts of kidnap, an angry crowd appeared outside a court in East London. Lang was again in the dock at Barking Magistrates. This time he was charged with two counts of murder. The court was told the case was complex, with over 400 exhibits recovered currently being forensically examined. And it was alleged that Lang was the man who entered the home of Matthew and Alison Manwaring, killing them both before stealing a car, a building society passbook and attempting to withdraw money from Mark Manwaring's account. As Lang's family watched from the public gallery, the defendant appeared impassive, turning around to meet their gaze. A smile slowly spread across his face before Benjamin Lang was led away to the cells. Aware that Sharon Taylor had provided information about Benjamin Lang, investigating officers wondered if Lang's girlfriend knew more than she was letting on. She was questioned further and eventually revealed that a single-barreled sawn-off shotgun that belonged to Lang had been hidden in her property under the stairs. Worried, she told one of Lang's friends, Mark Leslie, who collected the weapon before it was passed to Benjamin Lang's brother. Aware that he was now in possession of an alleged murder weapon, Peter Lang threw the gun into the River Thames. Police divers were called, and following a search of the riverbed, the shotgun was recovered. After the remains were carefully transported to a pathologist, he carried out two post-mortems. Each body had been beheaded. The limbs were removed with a Stanley knife and a hacksaw blade along with what was understood to be a knife from the kitchen. The bodies were cut into seven pieces, with both torsos hacked in half. The pathologist recorded that each body would have taken around an hour to dismember. He noted that the person responsible did not have any anatomical knowledge as the cuts were crudely made. As Allison's body was so badly mutilated, it was at first hard to confirm a cause of death. A blood sample could not be drawn from the body, as all of her blood had been drained in the bath by the killer. Apart from the injuries caused by the dissection, there were no signs of any stab or bullet wounds. However, after a further examination, the pathologist was of the belief that Allison died from manual strangulation. Her father Matthew was shot at point-blank range in the heart. The muzzle of the gun had left burns to his chest. A joint funeral was held for both Alison and Matthew Manwaring at Our Lady of Compassion Catholic Church in Upton Park, East London, although the service could not take place until the start of September. 
Lang's defence had the right to undertake their own post-mortems. However, four months would pass until the bodies were released, after they eventually decided no further examinations were needed. Mark Manwaring told reporters, It took this time to tell us they didn't want one. It's outrageous. Several hundred mourners paid their respects as Alison and Matthew Manwaring were laid to rest. A trial for the murder of Matthew and Alison Manwaring began towards the end of February 1993. Pleading not guilty to both charges, Benjamin Lang claimed he was not responsible, but was being framed by an organisation who called themselves the Fijian Freedom Fighters. Despite the mounting evidence against Lang, it was entirely circumstantial. At no stage had he admitted to the murders. Michael Stuart Moore QC told the six women and six men of the jury at the Old Bailey that it was the prosecution's case that after piecing together the evidence, Matthew Manwaring was shot to death and then his daughter Alison was physically assaulted and mentally tortured so Lang could obtain the information he needed in his attempts to cover up his crimes. Alison's hands were bound before she was killed, and the prosecutor said there was evidence of a sexual assault. Stuart Moore told the jury, Perhaps the motive is so obscene as to be unspeakable. It may be that you cannot believe that anyone would do, for the sake of a motor car and a few bank books, what I have described just out of sheer greed. What Lang did in order to get his way involved the destruction of a family. There are some aspects of this case which are extremely upsetting and harrowing. Don't allow emotion to rule your heads. After the killing of Matthew and Allison, the prosecutor said that the defendant dismembered their bodies in the bath and hid the remains. He had taken a toolkit with him, hidden in a guitar case. This included a 12-bore self-loading shotgun, black bin bags, handcuffs and a saw. Days later, he drafted a letter which he pretended was from Alison, addressed to her brother trying to explain away their absence. Hiring a separate car, a white Vauxhall Astra, he then collected the body parts of his victims which had been dumped on some scrubland and travelled to his girlfriend's home. While she was out, he carried the numerous black bin bags to the garden and buried the remains in the pouring rain. A curious neighbour witnessed a man who they identified as Lang and wondered what he was doing with a pickaxe and a spade. They considered it an odd time to be doing some gardening, considering how awful the weather was outside. According to the prosecutor, Lang had made attempts to hire a mechanical digger, but ended up borrowing a spade from his friend Mark Leslie, as it was cheaper. A year before the murders, Lang had answered several ads in local newspapers for expensive cars. 
However, he deemed these targets to be unsuitable. Even more callous using the same Ford Escort he had used to transport the remains. A day after the killings, Friday, April 24th, Lang took his friends to Alton Towers Amusement Park. He boasted about his new car. Michael Stewart Moore QC said photographs were later developed, picturing Lang smiling, showing not even the slightest inkling that the previous evening he had executed a father and daughter before dismembering their remains. The police had evidence that Lang purchased handcuffs prior to the killings. He was seen in the rain digging up his girlfriend's garden by neighbours in the same spot where the remains were found and Lang's fingerprints were discovered on a box of rubber gloves found close to the scene, where some of the man-wearing's belongings were discarded near the London docks. Lang, however, would later argue that although he did purchase some handcuffs, they were for sexual purposes and had nothing to do with the crimes. Addressing the court, the prosecutor said, Matthew Manwaring was not a big man. He was a very gentle, very kind and meticulous person. At 62, he was no match for Lang. At the moment he showed Lang the car, he became the wholly innocent target for murder. Speaking about Matthew Manwaring's daughter Alison and the horrors she suffered... The prosecutor told the court that she was forced to disclose that she had a secret abortion in the late 80s. As tears poured down his cheeks, Alison's fiancé would later reveal from the stand how Alison had only told him and a friend. The family were unaware. Describing the final day he got to spend with the woman he loved, Alison's fiancé broke down unable to bear the weight of what had happened. The prosecutor told the court that through intimidation, Lang forced Alison Manwaring to reveal her banking details and signed several checks on which Lang's fingerprints would later be discovered. Michael Stewart Moore QC said, She was subjected to mental torture and duress. Her hands were manacled to render her even more defenceless than she was. The handcuffs were put on as Alison struggled and bit deep into her skin. She was hit, slapped, perhaps punched to the head. There was some evidence of sexual assault in an area where you would expect. She was forced to reveal very personal things about herself to her tormentor. She told those things to save her life. The prosecutor told the jury that after strangling Alison, Lang cut up the bodies and cleaned up what he could. Pathologist Dr. Ian Hill, who examined the remains, told the court of the injuries sustained by each of the victims. As photographs of the bodies were passed to the jury, They were warned by the judge to be careful when handling them so they could not be viewed by anyone in the public gallery. The images were highly graphic.
his defence, Benjamin Lang argued that while he did take Mark Manwaring's passbook, he said he did not commit the murders. He insisted he was being set up by a group called the Fijian Freedom Fighters. Lang said that in the past he transported some firearms for them, but as he no longer wanted to be involved with them, he claimed they carried out the crime to frame him. Lang said that he had become involved with a man called Mohammed Kahan and another called Frank Cohen. Lang's defence counsel, Anthony Scrivener QC, later questioned the investigating officers on the stand and it just so happened that they had discovered an unsuccessful request from the Fijian government that had been made to have a man called Mohammed Kahan extradited concerning the import of firearms. While he was on remand, the defendant had called several officers to the prison where he was being held and told them he was terrified. Lang explained to the officers, Those people are dead. I did not kill them. I have seen the bodies, where they were put and where they are now. I will tell you, but you must understand I am frightened for my family and myself. You do not know what these people are like. Asked, where are the bodies? Lang responded, I will tell you, but if I do, you will put it down to me. I am an intelligent man, and if you do not believe me, I will go down for this. I am 24. I have seen and done things a man of my age should not have seen. Lang contended that the people responsible must have followed him when he went to take a look at the Ford Escort. It was alleged by the defendant that he received a call asking to meet with them late at night, oblivious to what they had done. They told him they had killed the man-wearings before showing Lang the remains at gunpoint. The group that threatened to kill him allegedly included his friend Mark Leslie, who had handled the murder weapon. Lang claimed he was forced to transport the bodies in the Ford Escort, which were buried in his girlfriend's garden as he watched from the dining room. Lang insisted it was them digging in the rain, not him. Furthermore, Lang protested that the exercise book the police had found in his home filled with details of how he was going to commit murder were in fact a work of fiction. Lang told the court that his father had asked him for some ideas for a book. They certainly did not relate to a murder plot. The defendant also said the list of items which the prosecution alleged had been written by him in preparation for the murders were written after the crimes were committed. He declared that the list was compiled by him, but he was only noting down what evidence the police had gathered against the person responsible. He continued to stress that he was not involved. From the stand, Lang told his defence counsel that he arrived at the Manwaring's home in the late evening of April 23, 1992. He said that he was purchasing a car for a friend, Mark Leslie, who gave him £8,000. Lang told the court that Matthew Manwaring appeared to have been drinking. 
and he wanted to wait for his daughter to come home as Lang offered £150 less than the asking price. The defendant claimed once the sale was complete, he was given the documentation including Mark Manwaring's passbook and drove off in the car. Lang insisted that these other men killed both Matthew and Allison, and it was only when he said he was going to the police, they pulled a gun on him and took him to the scrubland where the bodies had been left. The man he knew as Frank said that they would shoot him if he did not help. Lang claimed that Frank Cohen and his friend Mark Leslie were the ones who buried the bodies. According to the defendant, Mark Leslie, who handled the shotgun, had been there when the killing had taken place. However, whilst on remand, Lang made a contradictory statement as he had written to Mark Leslie's mother and told her that, quote, Mark has absolutely nothing to do with this. Through the Lord I have come to know I have found my strength. I am not the crazy person they say I am. Neither have I suddenly become the devil's disciple. Lang's defence counsel said his client had used his name when selling the car at an auction, so this implied Lang was making no attempt to conceal who he was if he had in fact committed murder. While the defence did have a witness who suggested they saw Lang on the night he was alleged to have committed the crimes, the individual told the court that he had lied as a favour. Danville Bromfield said he had been asked by Lang's girlfriend to lie to the police, as he was told that Lang was being set up. It was only when Bromfield realised the scale and publicity of the case he felt he had no choice but to admit he had provided a false alibi. The trial lasted for five and a half weeks. Following the judge's summary of the case, on the last day of March 1993, the jury retired. They deliberated for almost four hours. The verdict was unanimous on both counts. Alison's brother Mark shouted, and her fiancé Gordon, who had attended every day of the trial, was in tears. Benjamin Lang was found guilty on both charges. As the verdicts were delivered, there was a roar from the public gallery, shouting and cheering, so much noise, in fact, that the judge ordered that it stop. Then when Lang was led away, someone yelled down, I hope you rot in hell. During sentencing, Judge Robert Limbury told Benjamin Lang, You are a ruthless, arrogant, pathological liar. You turned on the tears when you described your false story. Fortunately, the jury were not fooled. Lang would be facing a life sentence with a minimum term of 25 years. The judge went on to say, whether the Home Secretary will then find it safe to release you must be a matter for him. He should be on his guard. 
you are a dangerous man, capable of extreme violence, deceit and dishonesty. You are utterly ruthless and have a clever and able mind. Benjamin Lang wanted to create the perfect murder with an IQ of 150 and being a student of the Open University he believed he had the intelligence to destroy two human beings eradicate all the traces and then lie his way out by framing his best friends in court Benjamin Lang conceded that the killer of Matthew and Alison Manwaring must have been a monster there was a chilling moment during the trial when those present realized that his description of the torture and murders allegedly provided by one of his best friends was in fact a projected confession Following the verdict, the prosecutor told the jury quite an extraordinary story in which Lang believed he was arrogant enough to get away with the crime. On the day Lang was burying the bodies, he had also composed a letter addressed to Mark Manwaring in which he tried to convince Alison's brother that both his sister and father were alive, just taking some time away. Incredibly, in that letter produced on a typewriter. Lang inserted his own surname through code in the correspondence. It was signed, Love Always in God. L. Love. A. Always. I. N. In. G. God. Detective Inspector Phil Burrows believed that had Lang not been apprehended, there would have been more victims. It is the signature of a potential serial killer, he said. I'm convinced if we had not caught him, he would have struck again. Even Lang's own father could not believe what his son had done. The Daily Express quoted him as saying, My father was an Anglican priest. I thank God he is not alive to suffer the shame of what's happened. Benji was always a bit of a rebel, but I can't come to terms with the fact of him murdering two innocent people. After the trial, the man-wearing shock neighbours went to offer their support at the legal proceedings and provided their thoughts to reporters. We all felt so. Great shock and disbelief. You don't expect that kind of thing down an ordinary suburban street, do you? And he was such a nice man. Inoffensive, you know. I had visitors that evening and they went about, two of them went about 10 o'clock and they crossed the road and one of them said that Mr. Manwaring was out and a fellow was looking at the car. Now you can't... You can't assess a car at 10 o'clock at night in the dark, even under a street lamp. What's in the mind of a murderer? Is there something wrong with him inside him? There must be. It's not sickness, though. Not sickness. Maybe he was born that way. Who can tell? Thanking the officers involved in the investigation, 
and the prosecuting team, Mark Manwaring, the sole survivor of the family, offered a prepared statement. He said, My dad was 62. He had worked hard all his life and had served his country for four years and was looking forward to retirement. My sister Alison was 24 and had her whole life ahead of her. She was looking forward to moving into the home she had bought with Gordon. Frustrated, Mark Manwaring went on to discuss how he felt the current sentences handed to murderers did not act as a deterrent. Alison had 60 years to look forward to, and my dad had a good 20 to look forward to. How can they say that 25 years of his life is worth 80 of theirs? It's not on. Life should mean life if the people in this country don't decide they want to bring back hanging in a referendum. One thing, finally, when he does come out, there will be people waiting for him, and then justice will be done properly. Almost two months after the trial, the three accomplices who helped Benjamin Lang dispose of the shotgun used to kill Matthew Manwaring and threaten his daughter Alison were sentenced when they admitted their part in the crimes. Sharon Thompson, Benjamin Lang's girlfriend, Lang's brother Peter and Lang's friend Mark Leslie would all admit to their part in the handling of the weapon before detectives were told of its location. The three would be spared jail, instead receiving a conditional discharge of 12 months. A charge of perverting the course of justice would lie on file after each defendant pleaded guilty. As Judge Robert Limbury, who presided over the murder trial, passed down his sentence, shouting erupted from the public gallery from the family and friends of the victims. The judge said, This is a court of law and not a lynch mob. These three had nothing to do with the murder. There is no reason why they should not pick up the threads of their lives now. The mother of Alison's fiancé who watched over the sentencing proceedings continued to raise her voice, upset that a jail sentence was not considered for the three individuals who had handled the murder weapon and hindered the investigation into the killer shouting how it was a disgrace. Gordon Helis's mother was found to be in contempt of court and the judge ordered that she be arrested. You can arrest me for contempt, she shouted, but it is nothing like the contempt I have for British justice. So where are we now? During 1995, almost two years after the court case, Benjamin Lang argued the verdict at the Court of Appeal. It was alleged by the defence that during his summing up of the case, the judge misdirected the jury over half a dozen times and was prejudiced against Lang highlighting the many inconsistencies with the account he gave to the police. 
while it was admitted by Anthony Scrivener QC that each individual ground for appeal carried little weight. It was the cumulative effect that Scrivener contended was important. However, following the review of the facts, the three appeal court judges, Lord Justice Russell, Mr Justice Turner and Mr Justice Hooper, did not detect any misdirection in the judge's summation of the case. Addressing the inconsistencies of Lang's story, the judgment read in part, It is true the judge repeatedly reminded the jury of the many lies that the appellant had told, and it is also true that the judge indicated such lies were matters which the jury could take into account in assessing the credibility of the appellant. This was a perfectly legitimate observation for the judge to make, and we are puzzled by the complaints under this heading to be found in the perfected grounds of appeal. We see no merit in them. Benjamin Lang's appeal was unsuccessful, and he would remain behind bars. Mark Manwaring and Gordon Helis plan to set up a trust to help victims of violent crime. They set out to provide a 24-hour phone line so victims could contact someone for emotional support. In an interview with The Guardian newspaper during February 1994, Mark Manwaring spoke about the effect the murders had on him and how normal life had come to an end. Addressing the lack of support for victims of crime, he went on to say, At the time, you just don't know where to go, where to start. We need a Department of Justice, not just for criminals, but for the people they affect. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Norma Citron, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. If you don't already know, They Walk Among Us will be appearing at CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event which is coming to London on Saturday the 12th and Sunday the 13th of June 2021. Tickets are on sale now at crimecon.co.uk and make sure you quote TWAU at checkout to receive not only 10% off, but we will also be giving away an exclusive t-shirt or tote bag which you can pick up directly from us at the convention. For more information, visit crimecon.co.uk and don't forget to use the promo code TWAU for 10% off. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.